0: You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here. I've missed you guys. I've been out for the last two Sundays because my wife and I were celebrating 25 years of holy matrimony. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. Very exciting. We, we went to Naples for a few days and stayed at this really nice hotel on the beach. And I had a plan. I'll be honest, I had a plan because I had something to prove. Uh, a couple of years ago, I decided that I was going to buy my wife a new wedding ring for our 25th anniversary. So I've been stashing a few bucks away uh, until the moment came. And it was way nicer than the ring I got her when we got engaged. I, The one that I got her when we were engaged, I was in college, and I had taken a second job doing construction to save up some money so I could buy her the ring. It wasn't great, just the best I could do at the time. And the other thing is, the way that I proposed to my wife, and if you've been around Calvary, I won't tell you that story, but I I have shared. It wasn't great. I proposed to her at her house in front of her family, mostly because a friend of mine almost spilled the beans that I was going to ask her, and I bought a ring, and I, I felt like I had to seize the moment so it would still, you know, wouldn't ruin the surprise. My wife wasn't thrilled about being asked at her house in front of her family because she didn't really like her house. She didn't really like her family. So that, you know, that, that created some problems. So anyway, so I had a plan. So uh, a friend of mine who's on our staff here uh, helped me design the ring. And then I, I have a friend in North Carolina who's a jeweler who uh, made the ring for me. So then I got the ring um, about three weeks before our anniversary. By the way, talk about something bo- burning a hole in your pocket. Uh, I, so I had the ring and then we, I booked a reservation at the restaurant in the hotel we were staying at, which was voted two years running the most romantic restaurant in Naples. So I figured if I, even if I totally botched this up, I'm still at the most romantic spot. So at least that's kind of helping I'll at least improve on the ask you at your, ha- at your house. At least now it was in a really nice place. So I go, the, day, the morning of, I go downstairs. I tell Carrie I'm taking a walk. And I go down there and I talk to the manager of the restaurant. I tell her that it's my 25th anniversary. This is what I'm going to do. And so I'm like, can I pick the table that we're going to sit at? We pick the table. Um, she's like, I'm going to let the wait staff know. So there's no... So anyway, by the way, best service I ever got in my life. Everybody's smiling, like, I, you know, waiting for this thing to happen. And so anyway... Uh, so the way, my plan was, we were gonna have dinner, and then they have these fire pits that are right on the beach. And so I had it worked out that we could have dessert on the fire uh, by, by the fire pits, and then right there next to the beach, I was gonna get on one knee, I was gonna give her the ring, and ask her to marry me for another 25 years. Thank you. So, <laughs> so that was the plan. The problem was, she said, "Listen, just be careful because." There might be some weather tonight, so it could be raining, so that might alter your plans. I'm like, all right, we'll do what we can. So we go down there for dinner, but halfway through dinner, it starts raining. So I can't, I can't do that, and so I say, hey, I'm so sorry. I tell Carrie, I'm so sorry it's raining. I had planned for us to have dessert on the, on the fire pits right there that you see and then to walk on the beach after dinner, and she says, Bob, don't worry about it. This whole trip has been perfect, and it certainly makes up for when you proposed to me at my house. And I said, well, speaking of that, and so I get up, I get down on one knee. And I feel, thank you for those of you that are crying as I'm telling this story. It means a lot to me. There are people crying in the first service. And uh, by the way, at this point, I started crying. And uh, and, and sorry, but I get on one knee and I say, Carrie, I love you with all my heart. Will you marry me for another 25 years? and, uh, and I, my heart was about ready to beat out of my chest. I was so nervous, because I didn't want to mess this up. I, I really wanted more than anything for her to have an amazing story to tell. Besides, he, he went to my house and accosted me and, you know, with these roses and whatever, and, and asked me in front of my, my mom and my stepdad. So anyway, so I asked her, and, uh, and I don't know why I was so nervous. I, I wanted to be It's not like she's gonna say no. You know, be like, you know what? 25 is good. Let's just, I'll just ask for the check right here. We'll just call it even. you know. So that wasn't it. So anyway, but I wanted her to have an amazing story to tell. So I get on one knee, ask her if she'll marry me for another 25. And then I take the box, the ring box, out of my pocket. My, my friend who built the ring, he did such a cool thing. The box had like a little light inside. So even though it was dark, I opened the box and it, the light was hitting the ring. And she gasped uh, that which, which that's, a good, that's a good. sign. It's a good sign. And then she said yes, absolutely. And so that's a good sign as well. And and, and then she said the third thing. She's like, is that diamond real? Uh, and that was the real kicker. That was the real kicker. And uh, <laughs> true story. And then uh, so this is a picture of her after I gave it to her. Um, so yeah. And then I so I said yeah. I appreciate that. And I said, yes, it's real, and it probably costs more than my car, so please don't lose it. And uh, so anyway, now, I tell you this for a couple of reasons. And First, maybe it inspires the guys to kind of step up their game a little bit. And, uh, and two, uh, we're about to embark on another amazing story together. The Gospel of Matthew holds a very special place in my heart for many reasons, but the first is this. This is the first book of the Bible that I read after becoming a Christian. The second thing is, this is the first book of the Bible that I taught when we started Calvary. And so, um, unfortunately, I did a terrible job almost 22 years ago, so I'm here to do it right. And none of you were here anyway when it happened, so it'll be like it's the first time. So, But Matthew has a story to tell. He has a plan and he's got something to prove. His his goal, Matthew's goal throughout this book, the theme of this book is to prove that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And he will emphasize this over and over again. Matthew, if you're not aware, is writing to a Jewish audience. So he's going to give special emphasis to prophecy that Jesus fulfills, miracles that Jesus does, and especially the words that Jesus says, like the Sermon on the Mount or his private discourse to his disciples in Matthew 24. And twenty-five, and because Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, one of the things that makes Matthew's gospel so unique is that this gospel was actually originally written in Hebrew and then tr- later translated into the Greek language. Now, and the reason why we're calling this series The Story is because I firmly believe that if you will learn his story, it will change yours. And I, I really believe that everyone wants to live a better story. We want today to be better than yesterday. We want a future for ourselves that's better, for not only for us, but for those that we love. And Matthew is going to show us how that is possible through the life of Jesus. Now, the theme of the Gospel of Matthew is, can be found in Matthew chapter 16. About halfway through the book, Jesus is in with his disciples in the northern part of Israel. And he asks his disciples this question. He says, hey, who do people say that I am? And people, they just start responding. Well, people say you're this, they say you're that. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Jeremiah, you're one of the prophets. They, they go on and they say who he is. And then he says this, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So where do you start in telling the story and sharing the life of the Messiah? If you're like me, most of us would think, well, if you're going to start, you start at the beginning, right? You start at the birth of Jesus, and then you, 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 you move from there. But that's not how it works for a Jewish audience. Uh, it might work for us, but, but not for them. Instead, we've got to start 42 generations before uh, Christmas to prove that Jesus is not just Jewish, that he's from the right family to put him in contention to be the Messiah. So we're going to start, if you have your Bible, if you have your notes, if you have the Calvary app, if you have the ability to see the screen and you're not sleeping then uh, we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and here's what we read. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot um, Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. By the way, some of you who want to have kids, these are... Some gold in here as far as baby names. This is my son Aminadab and his brother Ram. Um, now. Um, verse 5: Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her, who had been the wife of Uriah. And if you pause there and give me your attention. Uh, I, I know that you're like, wow, this is the most exciting Bible passage I've ever read. It's a list of names. And by the way, what does the word begot mean? And uh, begot means gave birth to, by the way. And this is this, if you're going to claim to be the Messiah, the first order of business in a Jewish mind is to not just show that you're Jewish, which is that you're the son of Abraham, but also to show that you are a descendant of King David. Because according to 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you're a note taker, you can jot that down. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where God gives David the promise that he will be, the Messiah will come from his line, from his family. So that's where we begin, that he's the son of Abraham, he's the son of David. So that's where he starts with Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac was his son, Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of the, the fourth, his name is Judah. Now, this is important, and Jesus is descendant from the line of Judah. And I put in your notes Genesis chapter 49, which is where the promise is given that the Messiah, the, the ruler who would come, would come through the line of, or want to be one of the sons of Jacob or uh, Judah. Now, now we have something very unusual, because Judah has two sons. And it says that Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And one of the things that I want you to notice is is that there's four women that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, this is very uncommon. And and the reason it's uncommon and and the reason why Matthew puts it in to show us something, he's trying to lead us somewhere. And the thing that he's trying to show us is because the, the birth of Jesus came about through unusual circumstances. Now, we accept it. We, we, it was like, hey, we've heard about the virgin birth so many times, we've just come to n- see it as a normal thing. But it wasn't normal. It had never happened before, and it hadn't happen, hasn't happened since. But what happens is it caused people at the time to stumble. It caused some people not to believe, even though it was prophesied by Isaiah, which Matthew will talk about later in the chapter. But Matthew is showing us that even biblical heroes had children who were born through strange circumstances and that their families were not entirely squeaky clean. So Judah, who was revered as a biblical hero, a biblical father in, in the time, he gives birth to these twins, Perez and Zerah, through Tamar. Now this is where uh, you know, the needle scratches on the record. And some, I'm realizing some of you have no idea what that means, but uh, you can look that up later. And so, but Matthew is showing us, because this is a scandal. Matthew is showing us that even the way this biblical hero Judah, his children were born, were through scandalous means. Now, Tamar, in her story, was, is worthy of a daytime soap opera. Uh, that's how mixed up and problematic it is because it had all the elements. It had affairs and incest. It had the guilty party calling for the murder of the innocent party. It was a real mess. And so the story, if you want to read it, is found in Genesis 38. And so I'll give you the quick uh, Cliff Notes version of it. But Judah has three sons. Uh, one named Ur, the other named Onan, and the third named Sheila. Can you tell that they were looking for a girl the third time around? So is, is it a girl? No? Well, we're still calling him Sheila. So anyway, so Tamar gets married to Ur, but Ur dies. And so according to Jewish custom, what would happen is, is that the, the brother, the younger brother, would marry the his sister-in-law, and then the first child that was born would be credited essentially to the, the brother who had died so that his family tree, his lineage, would carry on. Well, er, uh, Onan decides, I don't want to do that for my brother. He dies. So now Judah's having a problem. He's like, I've given my, two of my boys to this woman. Now both of my boys, two of my boys are, have died. And so there's, there is a common denominator here. And so I'm not going to give Sheila to marry Tamar because Tamar's 0 for 2 with husbands. So he says, hey, why don't you go home, uh, go back to your father's house, and just wait for Sheila to be old enough. Now, a couple things you need to know. uh, Tamar is probably maximum 16 to 18 years old at the time, max. Um, In that culture, people got married right after they hit puberty. Now, the other thing is that Sheila at the time is probably 11 or 12. So Tamar is led to believe that she just waits a year or two and then till Sheila is old enough and then they'll get married. But Judah starts stalling on giving Sheila to Tamar. So she decides to take matters into her own hands. So let me tell you what happens. Uh, This is in Genesis 38, it's in your notes. It says, When Tamar was told, Your father in law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep. Uh, she took off her widow's clothes and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. And she sat down at the entrance to Ename which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she was not given to him as wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Now, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and, say, and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. Now, guys, just as far as pickup lines go, this has got to rank pretty far on the bottom. But I don't know. I, I, th- then the, the response to it is uh, equally shocking. And uh, he says, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asks. And uh, I'll send you a young goat from my flock via Venmo. Um, <laughs> via Venmo is my new translation that will be coming out this fall. And uh, so he says, will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked, what would you, what, what pledge shall I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So she gave, uh, gave him to her. He slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Now, let me just give you a little, why is she asking for this? What is it to say? What is your cor, your cor, the the seal and the cord, which he would have had around his neck and the staff. That's like asking today, like, hey, what shall I give you? I want you to give me your driver's license, a major credit card, and your social security number. Because the staff was his position. The seal was his identity. Everything that he possessed, he would put his seal on to show that it belonged to him. Now, why is she asking this? Because she knew what was coming next. And look, this is a few verses later in verse 24. It says this, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution and as a result is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. I'm like, okay, a little extreme. Um, and, and she was being brought out. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff they are dun, dun, dun. That's in the original Hebrew. And, uh, it's, and then Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I would not give her to my son, Sheila. Now listen, this situation alone should have made her a notorious woman in Israel forever. But God was able to take something terrible and turn it into a literal blessing. Uh, when... Ruth gives birth. We're going to talk about Ruth in just a minute. When she gives birth, the midwives who are helping her give birth, they give her this blessing at the end of the book of Ruth. Here's what it says. Through, your, through the offspring that the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing to me. God is showing us that he has the ability to turn a messy family situation into a blessing because there are no squeaky clean families. And who would have thought that the name of the girl who slept with her father-in-law would now become the name of the blessing for every woman in Israel who has children. And the point is this, that everyone has things that they aren't proud of. And yet God has the ability to turn weaknesses into strengths and turn past failures into future blessings. It's certainly what we see with Tamar and it's certainly what we see with woman number two in this genealogy whose name is Rahab. Rahab was not a model citizen. In fact, Rahab was a prostitute that was living in the city of Jericho. And now her story, her whole life changes when she's faced with the decision to believe everything that she's heard about the God of Israel who rescued the people of Israel from Egypt and were bringing them to the land of promise or turn away the ambassadors who had come to have shelter in her home and ignore the future that she could have. And what's amazing to me is that she was a woman with a shady past for sure, but now her name becomes synonymous with faith. In fact, in in Joshua chapter 2, it's in your notes, you'll see it. It says, Now Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went, came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you and who have entered your house for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. And she said, yes, men came to me, but I don't know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut and it was dark that the men went out. And where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order. Listen, Rahab's life begins to change because she made a choice, and that is not to stay out of it, but instead to get involved in what God is doing. And those are always the two ways that you can live your life. You either watch life happen or you jump in and be part of the work that God is doing. And listen, and you may not realize this or not, but God will use anything that you give to him as long as you hold it with an open hand. What did Rahab have? She had a home and she received these spies in her home and she sent the those who would harm those spies in the other direction so that the people of God then would take the land but listen that was the game changer and sometimes we make all kinds of excuses as to why can't why god can't use us and why things can't change well god has different plans if you're open to it more on that in a few minutes woman number 3 is a woman named Ruth now this is a real problem because Ruth is not even Jewish she was from the neighboring country called Moab. Now, Moab was not a great situation. Uh, I've been to Moab, and I've been to Moab, you know, 2,000 years later. Still not a great situation. And it was, it was a bad neighborhood back then, still a bad neighborhood today. It's, it's part of, uh, today, it's part of modern-day Jordan. But to give you an idea, in, in Psalm 108, I love what the psalmist says. Uh, this is God speaking. Moab is my washpot. Uh, a new translation would be... It it was a nice way of saying Moab is my toilet bowl. If we were to translate it today, it would be uh, Moab is a gas station restroom. So to give you an idea. So, So to add this woman to the genealogy of Jesus is to go out of your way to say that Jesus is someone who includes outsiders. In fact, the reason that Joseph and Mary have to go to Bethlehem to be counted in the census is because of Ruth and her husband Boaz. Boaz, uh, Bethlehem, was his hometown. And Ruth is in the family tree of Jesus because she chose to believe when there was no reason to believe. Her husband had died, her father-in-law had died, her brother-in-law had died, and her sister-in-law decided to go back to her family. And so she's standing there simply with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who had told her to go home as well. And she's like, look, you need to go back home and start your own life. And Ruth decides to stay. And she says these words, some of my favorite in the entire Bible. She says, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts you and me. She's in the genealogy of Jesus because she defines what it means to trust God and be faithful when life has not given you a reason to believe. Sometimes for our lives to change, you know, it's as simple as making one good decision and simply sticking with it. Woman number four is probably the most scandalous of the four. It's so bad, Matthew doesn't even have the heart to write her name down. If you read verse six, it says, David, the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. I mean, that, I mean, just, that is a really you know, long way around the barn to just not say Bathsheba. He just didn't want to say her name. And, and, and we know how that works. You know, when your kids do something really bad and you're like, honey, look what your son did, right? Like you're just like, you don't even want to say Their name, you don't want to, right? You're like, oh, what's his name? I can't believe him. And so, and that's what happens. So so her name is Bathsheba. The story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. She has an affair with King David. In response to the affair that she has, David really likes her and says, "Uh, I'm going to, you know, go ahead and have your husband killed, which he does. Uh, Her husband is a faithful soldier in David's army. He stays home when he should have been at war. This guy, Uriah, is at war, which which is where he he was supposed to be, and so David has him killed, and then he ends up marrying Bathsheba. There's a whole bunch of drama and consequences. It's a mess, total mess. But what's amazing to me is that Bathsheba finds herself the mother of Solomon in the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, and you know, I I think about this, I think about this probably more than I should, but it, it is amazing to me that... This woman, Bathsheba, in all the scandal that she was part of, becomes the teacher for Jews and Christians for thousands of years into what to look for in a wife. In, in Proverbs 31, I love this passage. It says this in verse 1, The words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. Now, Lemuel is a name that means dedicated to God. It's a pet name that Bathsheba had for Solomon. And what is Proverbs 31 about? It's about what kind of woman to look for in a wife. Well, there's one more scandalous name that I want you to see. And this is a bit, I'm going to tell you right now, this is a deep cut. And so those of you that are Bible students are going to love it. And those of you that aren't, I need you to, I I, I really, I need you to buckle down for a minute. Okay. I need you to hang on. We're going to talk about some other things, but this is important to know. All right. So I'm going to read you verses um, 11 and 12. You'll see it up on the screen. It says, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheltiel, and Sheltiel uh, begot Zerubbabel. Now, I want to talk about this guy Jeconiah. Jeconiah was the second to last king in the country of Judah. He only reigned for three months. He was such a bad king that God decides he's going to put an end to this, and he pronounces a curse on Jeconiah. And so in Jeremiah 22, we read what it says. It says this: As I live, says the Lord, though Caniah, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life, and into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. Thus says the Lord write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling more in Judah. Now, some would read this and say, well, God just kind of shot himself in the foot because he promised David that the Messiah would come through the line of, of, of David, that he would rule on the throne of David. And now God pronounces a curse on Jeconiah that now it's like, that the royal line is now cursed. So anybody who's born on this royal line is going to be cursed. That's what Matthew wants you to think about. And then you realize that Joseph, because this is the line of of Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, that if Jesus were the physical son of Joseph, he would have inherited this curse. But because Jesus is the oldest stepson of Joseph, Jesus inherits the right to the throne without the curse that's associated with it. So the only way for the Messiah to come into the world and actually have a right to the throne of David is through a virgin birth. And that's what brings us to the story that we look at every Christmas, starting in verse 18. It reads this way. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make, a public, make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. That is divorce. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that might be spoken through the prophet by the Lord, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her until she has brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. If you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things I want to share with you as we close. Here's the first one. Jesus included people who society excluded. This list of people, these all these names that we looked at are testament to the fact that God uses imperfect, messed up, and if we're being honest, slightly unstable people to do amazing things. But somehow we get this idea that God only uses perfect people to do great things. Listen, God doesn't use perfect people. He uses simply willing people. Now listen, I guess it was about five, five and a half years ago or so, I bought tickets for my, uh, my oldest daughter, Mia, my son, Xander, and I to go see Coldplay. Now, Livvy was a little too young, and my wife hates Coldplay, so that's why they didn't go, so, which is just proof that as close as you might get, no one's perfect. So, um, But anyway, we almost didn't go because my son wasn't sure he wanted to go. He wanted to go, but he's like, oh, I don't know. When he found out the show was at 8 p.m., He's like, Dad, I'm sorry. I don't think I can go. The concert's too late. You know that when I stay up late, I go negative. Now, let me, let me explain what that means. My son, and, and he's still, he, he's, he's almost a teenager now, but, and, and he sleeps for all hours. But he's like, he, is a, a more, he wakes up very happy first thing in the morning. And, uh, you know, there's people who are married, like, do you wake up grumpy? Like, no, I just let her sleep. And um, so that's, that's not me. That's other people. So my wife wakes up very happy. Um, so, but my son is real. He's a very happy, energetic kid. But w- when he was younger, at, the later it got, uh, he would start to go negative. One night we were going to watch a show, and the kids were taking too long. And typically, what we'll do if we watch a show, like, hey, get ready for bed, and then we'll watch a show, and then you can go to sleep after. And um, they were taking a long time. And I'm like, guys, come on! And uh, and he's like, it's never going to work out. I'm never going to watch a show. I'm never. Gonna, I shouldn't even be part of this family. And I'm like. Okay. A little over the top. And I'm like, Xander, dude, don't go negative. Be positive. He's like, all right, dad, I'm positive. It's not going to work out. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's not what I was thinking. And so anyway, so we're talking about the Coldplay concert and I, I had gotten the tickets and, and, and he's, he's like, he gets upset. And he's like, dad, it's Coldplay is my favorite band and I'm not going to be able to see them because I know that I'm going to go negative. And I'm like, buddy, the show is almost a year away. I mean, you'll be almost eight by the time you see the show. And I said, but why don't you just make a decision? Make a decision that you're gonna let God work in your life. And let's see what happens when we get there. And I will try to fix you. Well, you jumped the gun on me there. but So that's what happened. Sing and Fix You with 55,000 of your closest friends. And about 150 degree weather. And, and listen, it was one of the best nights of our lives together. And it almost didn't happen because of something that we do to ourselves. We make all of these excuses as to why it can't happen. Why God can use other people, but not me. Listen, um, you got to stop that. You, got, you really got to stop it. I love this passage from the book of James that says this. It says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And let me tell you this. I'm going to tell you a little secret. Elijah was not the reason it stopped raining. Elijah was not the reason it started raining. God was the one who did it. Now, he did it through Elijah, and we're grateful for that. But it was God who did it. And too many people, listen, they just they can't believe God for greater things or think because ultimately they think it's somehow about them. It's not about you. It's about God who wants to work in your life because He loves you. Well, I don't understand why God loves me. Well, I don't understand that either. People are generally unimpressive. (laughs) All right? But the fact remains that you are the object of His love. So receive it and act like it. And, And we've all experienced this, right? Where we have, you ever buy a gift for someone who is a terrible gift receiver? It is the worst. Oh, you spent too much. Oh, you shouldn't have. Oh, this isn't right. There's starving people in the world. Shut up! Just open the gift, dude. I'm, like, just graciously accept it. Someone loves you, believe it or not, and wants to express their love. Like, stop making it harder than it needs to be. God wants to work in your life. Accept it. And acknowledge that he wants to work in your life and look for where he's working and jump in. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing I want you to know is that Jesus had godly parents who trusted God. Listen, we do not, we do not pay enough attention to Joseph and, um, you know, we focus on Jesus and that's good. And then our Catholic friends worship Mary and that makes Protestants uncomfortable. So what we do as Protestants is we kind of like downplay her, like Mary Mary who? Never heard of her. And, uh, you know, and, and because we get uncomfortable with the Mary worship. But here's the thing that we got to know. Here, Joseph and Mary, listen, they were godly people. Listen, God the Father could have picked anyone to put in the line of the Messiah, especially the family that, he, that his son would be born into. And he didn't choose a rich family or influential family. Instead, he chose two godly people who were willing to be misunderstood for the sake of doing God's will and bringing the Messiah into the world. Listen, the greatest gift that you can give to your kids isn't a thing. The greatest gift you can give to your kids is a faith that will help them know God and navigate the storms of life. I talked to parents, uh, and I'm telling you over the years, I've talked to so many parents who, who say this like, oh, I'm not going to push my faith on my kids. I'm going to let them kind of figure it out. you know. And I'm like, that is the lamest answer ever. Why do you think God gave you these kids? First and foremost, to give them a faith that is worth uh, giving, to, uh, giving to them. And listen, we don't apply that kind of logic to any other area of life. We wouldn't even apply that logic to a sports team. Like, are your, are your kids dolphin fans? Hey, I don't want to push being a dolphin. I'm sure I've told them the glory of 72, but I don't, want to, I don't want to push it on them, you know. You know, right? Like, no, right. you would never do that. Why? Because that's, some, right? that's something that a father passes on to his kids. And faith is the same way, only to an infinitely greater degree. And my friends, here, here's the reality is that sometimes... If we don't want to pass on our faith to our kids, it's a sign that we don't have a faith that we think is worth passing on. So here's my solution to you. Have a faith that's worth passing on to your kids. Have a faith that is so integral to your life that your kids would think it crazy to try and navigate life without a God who loves them and wants to lead them and direct them. Last thing, and then we're done. Number three, Jesus became a misfit to save misfits. The Gospel of Matthew was written, as I mentioned, primarily to a Jewish audience. And every Jewish reader is freaking out when they read this virgin birth situation. Because the way it worked in the Hebrew culture, when there was a problem surrounding your birth. Listen, your genealogy, your family history meant everything. That's why Matthew opens with it. But if there is a bizarre circumstance surrounding your birth, then there was a stigma that you would carry your whole life. Those people had a name. We, it's translated illegitimate in English, but in Hebrew, it's this word mamzer. Mamzer is a phrase, it's a very derogatory term that followed Jesus because his ver- birth was not normal, to say the least. In fact, I'll read you from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. When Jesus returns, he starts his ministry and returns to his hometown of Nazareth. It says, Jesus left that part of the country, returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us, and they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Listen, in a Jewish world, you were known as your name, the son of your father's name. And that's what linked you to your family, and that's what linked you to your entire um, family tree. If you're Jesus' disciple, Peter, Simon Peter was Simon Ben-Jonah. That is Simon, son of Jonah. That's what linked him to his entire family. When they called Jesus, Jesus, son of Mary. That was an insult. It meant that he had no father to attach to him. And that's why I said mamzer means illegitimate, but it has all these connotations attached to it. it only, the, the word only appears twice in the Bible, and I'll give you the first time it appears in the book of Deuteronomy, where it says one of illegitimate, mamzer, birth, shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Oh, by the way, let me share this with you since we're talking about Christmas and all. When the Bible tells us there's no room at the inn. We think there was no room at Holiday Inn. It's not how that works. They were going to, and by the way, they wouldn't need Holiday Inn because Joseph's family was from Bethlehem. So when the census is being taken, they all go to Bethlehem uh, to be to to take the the census that Caesar is asking for. So they go to their family home. That's the part of his, that's where their ancestral home, the part of the land that God had given to the people of Israel and to the tribe of Judah. But when it says there's no room at the end, the Greek word is this word kataluma. It's translated upper room. It's translated guest room. It's translated spare room, but it's never translated holiday inn. It's this Joseph's family wants nothing to do with this child. It has nothing to do with occupancy. It's saying we don't have any space in our house for this woman and the child that she's carrying. Now, I want you to think about something for a minute. What would it take for you to treat a pregnant woman this way? When my wife was pregnant with my three kids, she could have asked anything of me. And I would have done it. And I've told you the story before. But one time, she said, "Bob, would you?" And, and my wife eats so healthy. She has no idea how to eat junk food. It's really very sad. Um, it really is. She has no idea how to eat junk food. And um, but she, this is not one of the ways you know she's pregnant is because she wants junk food. But she's like, "Could you could you go to Burger King and buy me a Whopper?" And I'm like, "Yeah, absolutely. I may pick one up for myself as well." And uh, and, and, and she says, "But on your way home." would you be able to stop at McDonald's and buy the french fries from McDonald's? I'm like, that sounds fantastic. Happy to do that. And she says, but um, if it's not too much to ask, as you're driving by, could you stop at Wendy's and buy me a Frosty? And you know what you do for a pregnant woman? That's what you do, right? And I've always told my wife that I treat her like royalty. I take her to Burger King, I take her to Dairy Queen, wherever she wants to go. (laughs) And so, but listen, now imagine a family member comes to your house, comes to town and says, hey, I'm sorry, we had an emergency. Could, could, my, could, could I and my very nine-month pregnant wife crash on your couch? Of course. In fact, you'd probably say, no, you're not going to make your wife, your pregnant wife sleep on a couch. Listen, you take our bed and, and we'll sleep on the couch. That's what you do. Now, To add a little more, you know, to this, consider this, that hospitality is the highest virtue in the Middle East. To this day, we have friends that were uh, missionaries in Yemen for almost 10 years. And the way it works when you're in Yemen is that you're walking down the street. There are no public bathrooms. The way it works is that if you're walking down the street and you have to go to the bathroom, you just find any door, you knock, and you say, in Arabic, I need to use the bathroom, and they open up. Somebody does that at your house this afternoon. Like, hey, can I, go, can I come inside? I got to go. Like, no, you got to go. Get out of here before I call the cops, weirdo. And so, but in that culture, you can do that. You are think, like, hey, I, I got to go to the bathroom. And they they will open, they'll show you where the bathroom is. And then when you get out of the bathroom, they will have tea ready for you. They will have cookies. They'll have food. And then you're going to drink the tea because you don't want to be rude. And then you're going to eat the cookies and the food. And then by the time you're done with that, you probably have to go to the bathroom again. And then do that before you're on your way. And so that's what you do because hospitality is such a high virtue. Now, to a culture that views hospitality as the highest virtue, what would it take to say no to a woman who is nine months pregnant, who is part of your family, and say, no, I'm sorry, you can't stay here. There's no room for you. It's because the baby that she was carrying was a mamzer, and Joseph's family believed that this child would shame their family forever. So instead... They say, well, you can, there's a cave out back. We call it a manger, but it was basically a cave. And so they went back there with the animals because they couldn't make room for the savior of the world who was about to be born. But Joseph makes a choice. You know, Joseph didn't have to stay. I think this is why I love Joseph so much and he's become one of my favorite Bible characters over the last several years. I just absolutely love his faithfulness. I love his faithfulness to God, and I love his faithfulness to Mary. And this is the moment that sometimes we struggle with because, listen, if he left, I mean, he could have like quoted Bible verses and shown all the reasons, and Joseph stays knowing it's going to be difficult. And sometimes you wonder, is is this really God because it's difficult? Joseph stays knowing it's what God wants him to do and knowing that it's going to be difficult. But listen, nobody's ever found joy or success by taking less responsibility. And instead of praying for a lighter load, some of us need to start praying for a stronger back. Sometimes doing what's right is harder, but it always leads to a greater blessing. How do I know? Because it's 2,000 years and half a world away, and we're still talking about Joseph, and we're still naming our kids Joseph. And listen, he made a hard choice to stay, and the world is better because of it, because that mamzer didn't curse 10 generations. He blessed a thousand generations because he came into the world and he lived a perfect life and he died for us and he rose again and brought forgiveness and grace you see this isn't the cast of characters that you'd pick and I know that because this isn't the cast of characters I'd pick we want people who are like us we want people who don't have a lot of drama and haven't made strange career choices and God purposely sent his son into the world through this family I have an older brother who's five years older than me, and his room growing up, he had this shelf on his wall that had all of these trophies that he had won. Now, my brother, when he was younger, he really excelled at everything. My, my brother started playing drums and marching band, and it was like, and their marching band is going everywhere. And, um... They're, they're doing all these things. And then um, he starts playing hockey and he's like the star goalie in hockey. And he starts doing photography. And then like after three weeks, he's like Ansel Adams. And uh, he's taking, you know, pictures and whatever. And every activity that he had, he had all these trophies associated with it. And sometimes when he wasn't there, I would sit on his bed and I would just look at the trophies and I'd stare at them. And I would hope that one day, one day, I'm gonna win a trophy. That was my hope. My room was very different than his. I didn't have any trophies. My room was a disaster. My room, I was the screw up and I was the one who took an extra year to graduate high school. And then I came to know Jesus almost 30 years ago. And this chapter is the first chapter of the Bible that I ever read when I became a Christian. And I learned something that day. I learned that in God's eyes, I was a trophy. A trophy of God's grace. Someone that God could display to the world, revealing this is what I can do even when I have very little to work with. And guess what? You're a trophy as well. That we stand as trophies of God's grace and monuments of what God can do so that people can look at us and say, man, if God could do something great with them, then maybe God could do something great with me. And if we really are a trophy of God's grace, then maybe today is the moment that we start acting like it. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you. Thank you for your great love for us and that you have found us wherever you found us and that you wanted to transform us because it's not what we've done, Lord; it's what you've done because you've been so good and gracious to us so i pray god that you would continue that we would live a life that is a monument to your graciousness your goodness and your love for us that it might reflect who you are and infect others with how gracious you could be to them we pray it in jesus name and everybody said amen thanks for listening to today's podcast If today, you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church wanna help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.